far. Brother Richard, thank you for helping lead us in worshiping through song. Uh, and, uh, and Megan and Heather, thank you for your help. Um, but thank you, Brother Ramon, for a very helpful prayer confession. Uh, you and, and then Brother Courtney, thank you for serving us very well and a prayer of supplication. I just, I really appreciate being led um, well in prayer. One of the things I love about our service, and there's a lot that I love, but one of the things I love the most is the amount of time we spend together uh, uh, going before the Lord in prayer. Um, and it, it is, it's, it's a real treat. And so I thank you all for, for helping us with that. Well, um, First of all, if you're looking at your handout going, no way this is happening today. Uh, some of you had that look of, of when you hand out the syllabus and the students look at it and go, uh-uh, right? Um, I'm going to confess, I kind of like that when they look at you and go, you, yeah. My favorite is when you handed out the syllabus and somebody looked at it and walked out. Oh yeah, I felt like I'd done something then. Said, you're right, get on out of here. Don't let it hit you. No, I'm just. <laughs> um, so, uh, no. Uh, what you have a he- uh, in your handout, we aren't going to be able to cover it all. Um, so, it made me relax in not covering it all if I put it all there. And if you want to, and I'm sure you do, want to dive in later and begin to look at it further, you've got all the stuff that you need. So also, if you want to, if you like taking notes, take all the notes you want. If you want to be able to relax and know that any reference and all that I give, it's all in the notes. There's everything I have to say in terms of references are there, but there's also more that I won't touch on that is there as well. So I was supposed to... uh, I thought I was supposed to preach last Sunday, this text, um, and uh, in our worship God meeting on Friday afternoon, or Friday morning, uh, we were just going through things, and, uh, and I was made aware I wasn't preaching, I was dead wrong, and I was dead wrong. If you know me in calendars, that doesn't shock you a bit. Uh, that, that ended up being trouble because it gave me a lot more time to continue to think on the text. Um, and so that's why you have such a long handout ahead of you. Um, so anyway, we'll see um, where we get. So we, we're going to be in Isaiah 49. Before we begin, let me do a little bit of setup. So Richard mentioned uh, last time that the book of Isaiah contains four poems or four songs uh, that are called the servant songs and they are about a servant of Yahweh. Uh, he served us well last time by looking at us, helping us look at Isaiah chapter 42. This time we'll be looking at the, that's the first servant song, 42. We'll be looking at the second one this week, that's Isaiah, Isaiah 49. And then in subsequent sermons we'll cover the other two. But I, I think it's just helpful to be reminded and how strange all of this is. I'm going to guess if I polled us as a congregation right now and said, how many of you all uh, have in the last even year gone to a poetry reading? Um, now there's going to be some, but I'm going to guess, let's just do it. If you've gone to a poetry reading in the last one year, 
Okay, so my psalm is out. All right. Um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that many of us can't even remember the last time we dissected a poem. Probably can't remember the last time we did it in a group for sure. And yet here we are <laughs> with a beautiful day outside on Father's Day. The World Cup is on. hate to remind you of that, Matt. Uh, and we're here looking at a poem. And it would be odd anyway, but maybe we could understand it if it was like a song that was on the top billboard charts. We'd be like, well, maybe we need to look at this together. But make sure you catch how weird this is. We're gathered around a poem that was written 3,000 years ago or thereabouts. That's wild. And it gets stranger. Not only are we gathered around a poem together, we're going to look at some poetry. We believe that in doing that, we will hear the voice of our Maker, the voice of God. We don't believe that we will find the voice of God by losing ourselves in meditation, by chanting pedantic chants, by ecstatic utterances, by fly fishing or smoking grass. No, we think that if we can turn our attention by the Spirit's help, that we can read the Bible and hear from God. That's strange. But that's how God has grown His church from the very inception of it. And I am utterly convinced it's the only way He will grow His church until we see Him face to face. And so here we go. Grab your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 49, and let's look at the first verse of our poem together. I'm going to read for us the first 13 verses. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver, He hid me away. And He said to me, You are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing, in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? I said that wrong. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out to those who are in darkness, appear, and they shall feed along the ways. All on bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for He who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up, Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will give compassion on his afflicted. Let's pray. Father God, there's no way we could ever dream up what you have already established in your providential plans. And yet, in your amazing providence, you were kind enough to write it all down. And so we pray that you would give us help this morning help beyond our natural minds, but help given by Your Spirit to see and behold the beauty of Jesus Christ as held forth in Isaiah 49, 700 years before He ever walked the earth. And Father, I pray that it will be seen without a doubt that this is the Jesus who walked the earth. This is the Jesus that we see recorded in John. This is the promised Messiah. And would you be kind to help us love Him, adore Him, treasure Him, and deeply desire to see Him win His bride. We pray for this, Father. We ask for this. We pray that you will grow us in our love and devotion to your servant, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ today. Amen. Well, I want to dive right in. Um, there's so much to cover. It's so hard to... Not cover it all, but let's look right at verse 1 of Isaiah 49. 
Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So what you're going to see is at times throughout this uh, poem, in this passage, sometimes we hear directly from the servant, and then sometimes uh, we hear from the Lord about the servant. But this time, we're hearing directly from the servant, and what does he say? Look there. He says, listen, it's a command, listen to me. So when he's saying, listen to me, to whom is he asking, commanding, should listen? Well, before we answer that, let's be reminded of the situation at hand. So Isaiah is writing to comfort a people that will outlive him. Let me say that again. Isaiah is writing to comfort a people who will outlive him. He is writing prophetically by the Spirit of God to the people of Judah for their forthcoming exile in Babylon. So about a century after Isaiah dies, the people of Judah will be exiled into Babylon. In Isaiah chapters 40 through, 40, through 66, through the end of the book, those chapters are written specifically to offer them comfort. So when the servant says at the beginning of verse 1, listen to me, we might expect that he would be speaking to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. But here, the servant broadens it, not by just a little bit, but by a whole lot. Listen to me who? O coastlands. And give attention, all you people from where? Afar. So if you're talking to coastlands, you're talking to afar, this is global reach. This is the entire world. It's a global audience. And what does he have to say to him, this servant? He tells them that the Lord... That's Yahweh. You probably see that in your translation it's got it as all caps there for Lord. The Lord has called him from the womb, from the body of his mother. So now again, just keep the timeline in mind. Isaiah writes 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth walks the earth. 700 years. I mean, just get a grasp on 700 years. Think if you went from 700 years right now and you go back 700 years. We're talking way, way before the founding of the Americas. We're talking well before the Protestant Reformation. Certainly well before the Enlightenment. We are talking before Shakespeare. We're talking high middle ages. Forget Shakespeare. We're probably talking Dante. That's 700 years ago. This text is written 700 years prior to Jesus being born. And the servant says... Hey, listen up, world. I'm coming in, a, in the womb of my mother. 
<laughs> um, how, how do you fulfill that, right? So 700 years before the birth in the stable in Bethlehem, we have this person speaking, commanding the entire world to listen to him. Now we might think that that's how millennials are all born, but okay, that might be. Um, but no, this is a person who is so ageless that he can command before his birth that the entire world listen up. I've got to warn you that I come to Isaiah, and I just finally just had to surrender this and enjoy it. I come to Isaiah with John in mind. We've been marching through the Gospel of John in our equip hour on Sunday nights. And it's all over my mind as I'm reading Isaiah. So I finally just said, forget it. I'm enjoying it. I see, I read Isaiah 49 and all I can see jumping off the page is the Gospel of John in the person of Jesus Christ. The more we've gone through John, the more amazed I've been at the greatness, the preeminence of Jesus so, I'm hoping this morning that you are going to leave after a little time together and see that the person of Isaiah 49 is Jesus as shown in John and that we all are encouraged that the coming reign of Jesus will come as certain as the promised incarnation of Jesus came after Isaiah wrote it. So in Isaiah 49, we've been told that this servant will join humanity through the womb of his mother and in so doing will make a call to the entire world. You got that in mind? Global call, call to the world and coming to the womb of his mother. Look with me at the opening passage of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That would certainly make him perfect in spot to be able to make calls to the world such as listen up all you peoples well before he is born. Verse 9, The true light which gives light to, hear this, everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Isaiah writes to the Jewish people who will be in exile in about a hundred years after he dies that there is comfort coming and that comfort coming will come 700 years later in the person of Jesus Christ. And now think about it. Now we have John. What's John doing? Well, John is writing on the secluded island at the end of his life and what is he doing? He's looking back. Isaiah was looking forward. John is looking back. And what is John saying? John is saying over and over, that was the servant king. I saw him. I beheld his glory, that of grace and truth. 
This was meant to comfort the people as they sat in exile in Babylon. The comfort was that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the servant of Isaiah. But keep going with me and see how defined it gets. Watch this in verse 2. As we go to verse 2, we learn how he's going to advance, how this servant is going to advance his mission. Listen, it's not going to be political, it's not going to be military. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Interesting. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So the servant is described as having a mouth out of which comes a sharp sword. But we know of somebody like that. We know of somebody like that in Hebrews, don't we? Don't we know in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that it says of Jesus Christ, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged, you fill in the blank, sword piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This servant will advance His kingdom by His Word. Ah, that's all over the book of John. But now notice the second part of this, second half of the verse. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver... He hid me away. So he, he's not only a sword, but he's a polished arrow. Polished arrow, less friction. The thing can fly exactly where you want and it strikes exactly where you're going to put it. The arrow strikes where the Father decides it strikes. So the servant is described as one whose words are whose words are piercing and yet whose plans are hidden in the providential purposes of God. Piercing words and plans hidden in the providential purposes of God. Look with me at John chapter 5 verse 19. So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's the hidden quiver. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Whoever does not honor the Son, He doesn't honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, Whoever hears my what? My word. If you hear my word and believes him, and believes he who sent him has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but death has passed. So here we see the Son, that is Jesus. He's the beloved one sent by the Father. He's the polished arrow who is hidden in the quiver of the Father's plans. And like an arrow that can go nowhere that is undirected by the archer, the Son does nothing except that which the Father ordains. And here's the interesting thing about an arrow. When an arrow lands, it lands at a good distance away. But let me tell you, when it lands, 
It definitely announces the presence of the one who sent it, doesn't it? So Jesus lands 700 years after Isaiah writes, 2,000 years after the promise to Abraham, but when he lands, he immediately announces the long providential plan of God the Father. And while an arrow is a, is a weapon yielded at a distance, a sword is a lethal weapon in close space. So look at John chapter 10 at how Jesus has words that pierce, they cut, and they forever divide. John 10 verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, this is His mouth again, right? Remember when He speaks. Sometimes we get pictures of Jesus and we all think He's singing Kumbaya all the time, right? And he didn't say that His, his mouth is a, is a sleep machine, right? It's not a noise maker. His mouth says, is, is what? It's a sword. Jesus said, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you did not believe because you not, are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Nobody is going to snatch them out of my hands. My Father has given them to me, and He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father were one. He's a sword. He's an arrow. Some hear His words and are forever changed, and they become His sheep, while others are offended and they turn away. So we continue in verse 3 and 4. I don't have time to cover this majorly, but I gave you all the text. In verse 3, the servant identifies himself with the promised seed of Abraham, the people of Israel. There's like a whole sermon there. It, it's great, but um, just in your notes. He said to me, verse 3, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Unlike Israel who consistently dishonored God, the servant Jesus will glorify the name of the Father. Then in verse 4, we see the servant will not have a very smooth path. As he acknowledges that many of his efforts are going to be frustrated, he's going to be frustrated, those Will, there will be many who will reject Him, and yet the Father will still accomplish all that He has ordained. Now we move to verses 5 and 6, and we see the mission of this servant a little closer. Verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations. My salvation will reach to the end of the earth. So certainly the servant is going to gather Jacob, that is, the Jews. He's going to gather them back to Yahweh. 
There's going to be a gathering emphasis to his mission. But verse 6 makes it clear that, that that's not enough. That to gather only Israel would be too small of a task for this servant. Instead, he is going to have him go on mission to the entire world. As you watch the ministry of Jesus unfold, in particular in John, that's the disconnect that's always going on. Jesus is talking about not just raising up the Jews. Jesus is talking about saving the world. And the disconnect happens. Look at John 11. This is an interesting time. This is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the tomb. You would think he would be a hero, but... Some folks pretty angry about it. I've never thought how Lazarus dealt with that one. I would imagine you want to go to a counselor after a little while on that. What's wrong with you? I was dead. After I was raised, all my friends were upset. Yeah, I think that would take some time. Um, but that's exactly what happened to the poor guy. Um, so here in John 11, they're plotting to kill Jesus. How dare you go raising the dead? And one of them, Caiaphas, he's the high priest. Just listen to what he says. So great. Jesus says one time, don't worry about it. I can make rocks cry out. He does it all the time. Here's a rock. Just a rock crying out. I mean, no thought. He's just crying out. And he gives words that are unbelievably beautiful. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. <laughs> he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered where? Abroad. So the servant of Isaiah will gather the people of the nation while extending salvation to the world. And here John shows us that by the death of Jesus, the servant of God, he gathers the people of God, but not for the nation only. Instead, his salvation will be for who? For the entire world. One man must die, not just for the nation, but for the world. It's exactly what Isaiah prophesied in the poem here in Isaiah 49. As you look at verses 8 through 12, there of Isaiah 49, we see Yahweh more clearly define the mission of the servant. First notice that He will send the servant as a covenant. Isaiah 49, 8 says, Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you. So this is the Father. This is Yahweh. He's doing what? He's giving the servant as a covenant. So the Father sustains the servant and sends him or gives him to execute his covenant. As you look across the book of John, I was blown away by this. It is littered with dozens of statements about how Jesus is sent from the Father. I didn't even try an exhaustive search. I just quickly went through some examples for you and put them down. 
Over and over and over and over, John is jealous that we see Jesus didn't just pop up and everybody says, wow, but Jesus is sent. He's an arrow who was shot way, 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 way before he landed. He's sent. But to whom is he sent? Was he sent to the nation of the Jews? Or is he sent to the Gentiles? Yes. In verses 9 and 10, we are told that Jesus comes to the following folks. Listen carefully so you can make sure you find yourself as one of these. Prisoners, blind, hungry, and pitiful. Jew or Gentile, he doesn't care. You just have to be not just one of those, but all of those. As long as you're in prison, as long as you're blind, as long as you're thirsty, hungry, and pitiful, you're ripe for the picking. Jesus will take you all day long. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear that and go, that doesn't sound like, you know, the best of the pick. In prison, hungry, thirsty, pitiful people, that's, that's, that is what's going on in John the entire time. Look with me at John chapter 8. There's so many examples of this. We'll just look at John chapter 8. So Jesus is talking first to some Jews who have actually believed in Him, trying to give them some encouragement. And the religious leaders pick up on it, not happy with Jesus. So Jesus said to the Jews who have believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples. This is chapter 8, verse 31. Here's for 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's all, that's all you got to do is know the truth, and it'll set you free. They answered him, whoa, 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 whoa. We, you can imagine the pride. I mean, the, ah, we are the offspring of Abraham. <laughs> we have never been enslaved to anyone? Remember the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, then there were the Greeks, then there were the Persians. You got it, right? We are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. We need nobody to set us free. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, you've been enslaved your entire existence. It's not just a little while. It's your entire life. The slave does not remain in the house forever. It's such a pitiful statement. You know the saddest part for a slave? The saddest part for a slave is that what they have in their slavery may end. Because that's the best thing they have. They could die. Your time here in this house could end. Jesus is looking at him and saying, it's so much worse than you think. Not only are you enslaved and you don't know it, but the slavery you have is actually better than what is coming. It is so damning. 
I love the second part. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son here remains forever. You want to change your life? Then stop being a slave and come on up to the house and eat with the family. Verse 36, So if the Son, now we get a capital S, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here Jesus rebuffs the religious leaders when He tells them that He can offer them freedom. The point is that every person born in to the world is a slave to sin. And the only one who can free us is Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that many in our culture think Christianity is about conservative do-gooders who have some hero named Jesus. What would Jesus do? Perhaps you're here and that's actually what you think Christianity really is. It's just a bunch of conservative do-gooders. This passage leaves us assured that if being a do-gooder is what makes us a Christian, then we are in big trouble. Here at our church, we are short on do-gooders. We are full of folks who, like me, have admitted our imprisonment to sin, our blindness, our hunger, our thirst, and our pitiful condition. We are those who have nothing to offer unless the Son sets us free. We have crosses hanging in our gathering place and we find that beautiful. We find that beautiful because these emblems of execution and torture remind us that the Son of God was treated like a slave so that we might be treated as a son. And the only hope is not cleaning your life up, not checking all the boxes, not getting it all right. The only hope is to look at Jesus and say, I'm imprisoned. I'm blind. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. So we see that the servant gathers those in Israel and those across the world who are afflicted and in need. And verse 13 wells up with praise. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O nations, our old mountains into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. The servant is praised for His compassion. Praised for His love. And as you look at the end of John, you see Jesus praying. Just praying for His followers that they would continue to trust in in the Father. So as we consider this poem, we see that it points right at Jesus of Nazareth. What do you do with it? Well, first, 
we should believe it. We should believe the words and the claims of Jesus. Follow them and obey. If you're here and you've not come to a spot where Jesus rules and reigns in your life, trust Him. His words will either draw you or they will ruin you. But there is no other option. Second, we should be encouraged that just as sure as the words of Isaiah came true in this first coming of the Lord Jesus, just think about it. He prophesied it 700 years before, and it happened. Just as true, the second coming of the Lord Jesus is coming, just as it's written. Not all of Isaiah 49 is yet fulfilled. It's a whole other sermon series. It's coming though. You can bet it's coming. The arrow is already left the bow. Third, we should long to make Jesus known. Our last time in the Quip Hour, we looked at the two verses and uh, three verses in John that have just really stuck with me. John the Baptist was getting was losing a lot of his followers to Jesus. And folks basically came and said, so how does that make you feel? I mean, he had a lot. Now he's got a lot. What are you going to do about that? Blown away by his response. John chapter 3, verse 28. John the Baptist says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent, but I am sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It won't be long at all. Less than a year. He'll be beheaded after a drunken stupor of a party at the king's house. John uses the picture of a bride and a groom. Jesus is the groom, and all who follow Him are the bride. John says he is happy to be the best man at that wedding. That's exactly what he's after here. He just wants to see Jesus get His bride. That's so convicting for me. I live my life quite often with the opposite principle. I often want Jesus as my quiet, unobtrusive, best man who's there when I need Him and anytime I want, He'll just cheer me on. I'm convinced that John looked at Jesus and saw Him as all the promises of Isaiah fulfilled. He fully believed that Jesus would offer salvation to the world and all he wanted to do was bring the bridegroom to his bride and watch. Our pastors have asked that we set aside Wednesday as a day of prayer and fasting in hope, fasting for longing or the hope of the coming kingdom and prayer that we might reach the lost world around us. If you're not familiar with fasting in the Christian tradition, the idea is that we fast as we anticipate the work that God is going to do. 
On the other hand, we feast over things that God has already done. So we have a Lord's Supper that's always looking back in memorial and remembrance of what God has already done. But we feast over, I like this saying, feast over that which has been done, fast over that which is yet to come. God is not going to be impressed a lick by lack of eating this week. If you're like me, your doctor would probably be a lot more impressed than God for a day of not eating. But God will be honored as we take time to think on and long for Jesus Christ drawing others to Himself. It's my prayer this morning that the greatness of Christ is seen in Isaiah draws us and creates in us a longing, a hoping, to see that realized in our world. Very, very quickly as we close, I love this story in the 1700s at the beginning of the Moravian Missionary Movement, which was a massive movement in the 1700s. There are a few young men in Denmark and Copenhagen who caught wind of thousands of Africans who were being shipped to the West Indies and were staying there on an island these men were zealous to go. Why? Because they all knew that they did not know Jesus Christ. And these men wanted to go tell them about Jesus. These young men. Two of them boarded a boat. They bid their family and friends farewell, almost certain they would never ever talk to them or see them again. The story goes that the young men lifted their hands as the boat was pushing away in a sacred pledge and called out to their family and friends on shore, may the Lamb that was slain receive the reward of His suffering. Our God's grace, may we spend time this week in prayer fasting, partial fasting, however it works, that God might make a banner cry in our heart with some type of zeal like that. May the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. And may the servant get the bride He so richly deserves.